Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Do you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's secondhandbookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah, and thank you for joining me again this week on our journey through the stand. I hope everybody is doing well. I hope that you are all staying safe and healthy. It's April. Um, Spring is here, at least here in Ohio. The weather is getting nicer. The flowers are blooming. Um, It just kind of sucks that we're all kind of self-isolating, so it's hard to really get out and enjoy it. But um, we will get through this. Hopefully there is an end in sight and things will get back to normal uh, sooner than later. Until that happens, I hope that all of my listeners are doing well, and I hope that you are finding things to uh, keep your spirits up and to um, enjoy. Um, For me, I've been um, beyond working. I've just been doing a lot of reading, and I've gotten back into writing. I'm um, taking part this month in Camp NaNoWriMo. (laughs) I don't even know if that's how you say it, NaNoWriMo, as how I say it. (laughs) It's probably wrong. (laughs) But I'm still enjoying myself, and it's nice to have a creative outlet to kind of focus on um, rather than just staring at the news and social media all day long, um, including in that um, is this podcast. And I've been having a lot of fun um, doing this so far, especially now being stuck at home. This gives me something uh, to look forward to because even though we're not talking to each other, um, knowing that you guys are listening, um, I, I don't know, kind of helps me feel a little bit connected to the world outside of my house. So, um, I hope that you guys feel the same way and rather than continue to ramble on about this, we're just going to go into uh, chapter 47 here of on the border. But before we do that, I'm going to give you a quick recap of chapter 46. Fran started keeping a diary to document their journey and to write down things that she wanted to remember from before the plague. Most of the chapter is from her point of view, either from her diary or otherwise, and we learn that the group had met two other survivors coming out of Albany, New York, uh, Mark and Parian. And unfortunately, Mark begins to suffer from appendicitis, and Stu takes on the challenge of trying to operate on him and remove his appendix to save his life. Unfortunately, Mark dies, and this leads Parian to commit suicide by taking an overdose of the sleeping pills that the group had been taking to try and combat the bad dreams. The group also discovers they are essentially sharing the same dreams, and they make the decision after finding the Stovington CDC abandoned to head to Nebraska. So in chapter 47, we stick with Glenn, Stu, Harold, and Fran. It's just the four of them now, and it's July 30th. They are on the road, and there had been little said between the group since Stu had to wake up Harold and Glenn to tell them about Parian's suicide. Fran knows that Stu is blaming himself for what's happened, and she wants to assure him that it's not his fault, but she worries that doing so will mean she reveals how she truly feels about him. 
she will have to pin her heart to her sleeve where he could see it. But unfortunately, that would mean Harold would see it too. And Fran can only protect Harold for so long. He would have, have he would have to know um, about Fran's feelings for Stu eventually. They're not going away, and she thinks she's falling in love with him. And Harold is going to have to accept that or not. And Fran is worried that he might not accept it because they're all carrying a lot of shooting iron and she is questioning his mental stability. As Fran is stewing over these thoughts, um, ha, see what I did there? Stew, stewing. Um, <laughs> the four come around a curve to see a house trailer overturned in the middle of the road. There are three cars on the side of the road, station wagons, and a big auto wrecker parked on the side with them. And there are people standing around about a dozen. Fran is so stunned to see other people that she breaks, uh, probably a little too hard, but thankfully the Honda doesn't throw her off. And Stu and Harold follow suit. Glenn is riding behind Harold on his motorcycle. One of the men tell them to dismount. Fran notices then that there are four men and they're all carrying guns. The women, eight of them, are looking pale and scared, clustered together by the station wagons in small groups. It's very clear what these men intend to do, and then it dawns on Fran. Four men, eight women. Stu quickly grabs his rifle that had been slung over his back. Harold grabs for his pistols that are still strapped into their holders, and the man yells at the other men to get them and save the woman. That is when one of the women, a short-haired blonde, screams, now, and it all happens rather quickly, in about seven seconds, according to Fran. Several of the women jump into the fray and try to overpower the men with the rifles. Shots ring out, and Stu is knocked off his motorcycle. Some of the women are shot and killed, and Stu is able to get a few shots off as well, killing one of the men. Harold is finally able to get his pistols free, but he misses one of the men who then aims towards him, <laughs> causing Harold to drop his pistols and raise his hands, screaming at him to don't do it. There's a lot of blood flying around, a lot of chaos. Fran is sitting um, astride her bike, and she's kind of just in shock by what's happening. She compares it to Bonnie and Clyde in her mind. Thankfully, in the chaos, there seems to be a lot of misses with the gunfire, and a lot of the rifles are out of rounds. A woman in a Kent State University sweatshirt uses the butt of one of the rifles to bludgeon one of the men to death. Glenn is sitting there in shock as well, weeping with his head in his hands. Finally, it all ends, and the girl in the sweatshirt stands astride the man's body beneath her, releasing a long, primeval scream that haunted Fran for the rest of her life. With the four armed men dead, along with a few of the women, Fran and the others learned that the blonde woman was Dana Jurgens from Xenia, Ohio. The woman in the Kent State sweatshirt is Susan Stern, and a third woman who had grabbed one of the men's crotches quite painfully was young Patty Kroger. The eldest woman in the group was Shirley Hammett. No one knew the name of the other surviving woman who appeared to be in her mid-thirties. They had found her wandering in shock in the town of Archibald two days before. Now, Fran's party of four was a party of nine, and they got off the highway and were camping in a farmhouse somewhere just west of Columbia, over the Indiana state line. Everyone was in shock. The gun battle played over and over in Fran's head, one of the women getting shot in the face, 
Stu falling over and Fran believing for a moment that he was dead. One of the armed men screaming, yeah, you bitches. Susan Stern's primitive cry of victory when she smashed in the skull of one of her captors. Glenn is walking beside her to the farmhouse, Fran, patting her hand relentlessly, and it's clear he's having a difficult time comprehending what had happened. And he's rambling on about it, you know, such horrors are bound to occur after all, and it seems like he's talking mostly to himself, trying to reassure himself that this was inevitable. But then, this was also an isolated incident, surely, and it was best to think of these men as trolls or yogs or afrits. Monsters of a generic sort. Fran wants to tell him to stop patting her hand, but she's afraid he might start crying if she did that, and she did not think she could stand to see Glenn Bateman weeping. Harold is also a bit frantic, probably running high on the adrenaline of everything that had happened. They had wiped out those men and they'd had to do it. It was them or us, something that Dana agreed with. She had been with two men, Rich and Damon, when they came upon the group of men who had immediately shot Damon and Rich, even placing a round of bullets into their heads afterward to make sure they were really dead. By rights, Dana said, they should all be dead now. Harold agrees, probably because he needs that reassurance that they did what they had to do, given how bloody um, and violent the experience had been for all of them, and no doubt traumatic. To try and focus his energy, Harold pulls out a payday bar to eat. In the farmhouse, Dana and Susan do most of the talking. Dana had left Xenia with Rich Darless and Damon Bracknell. They had only come across three others in Xenia, an old man, a woman, and a little girl, but they had business out west and opted not to travel with Dana and the others. Around July 8th, they had all started to have bad dreams about a boogeyman. Rich had begun to think that the boogeyman was real and in California. He thought that the business the three people had in the desert had to do with the boogeyman. Rich began to call the boogeyman the hard case, and the people out west were also hard cases. This army of hard cases would enslave everyone remaining in America, and then the world. Dana and Damon had begun to question Rich's sanity, and then they began to wonder if they should slip away from him and sometime in the night... Maybe their own dreams were the result of Rich's powerful delusions. In Williamstown, they had come across a smash-up, just like the one Fran and the others had before the gun battle. The four men had murdered Damon and Rich and taken Dana. She was the fourth addition to what they called the zoo or the harem. One of the other women had been Shirley, who at the time had still been somewhat normal. Now, I don't really want to get into the details of what the men did to these women. Um, if you're reading along in the stand, you already know um, the details are very barbaric and disgusting. Um, so I'm not really going to get specific. Um, I think at this point, the fact that there were four men and eight women, and they called the women the zoo, you pretty much already know what's been going on. Two of the men, Doc and Verge, had been part of an army detachment sent to Akron to suppress the media as the flu spread. They shot looters who fled and hung those who didn't. After it was over, Doc and Verge stuck together, followed by Garvey and Ronnie on July 3rd. At that point, they closed their little membership. The women had eventually outnumbered the men, but the men kept them under control by feeding them pills. Susan and one of the dead women, Rachel Carmody, 
had been picked up on July 17th, and the blue pills calmed them. After a while, you almost stopped thinking about escape. What you wanted more was getting those blue pills to numb everything else. But the men seemed to realize that eight was their limit. When they would take on a new woman, they would shoot and kill one of the others. Doc used to joke about it, Patty said. He'd say, I don't walk under ladders, I don't cross black cat's paths, and I'm not going to have 13 people traveling with me. On July 29th, the group had caught sight of Stu and the others passing by on the interstate. Garvey had been very taken with Fran, and they had planned on killing Shirley when they took Fran on. Dana had realized that Stu and the other men might be their last chance. They had three men in their party, all armed. Doc had been a bit overconfident, too, with the trailer turned over in the road bit. The women palmed their pills that morning to stay alert. They didn't tell everyone their plan. Only Dana, Patty, and Helen Rogett, who had been shot by Ronnie in the gunfire. Dana looks at Stu and tells him that it would have still worked, if he, even if he hadn't gotten wise. Stu says he didn't get wise near soon enough, but next time he would. And that scared him, how wise everybody was getting. Fran is not really enjoying this little exchange between Dana and Stu, especially when Dana tells Stu that it's a get-wise world, get-wise or die. Stu looks at her then, and it's like he's really seeing her for the first time. Cue the jealousy in Fran, and she worries that she waited too long to tell Stu how she felt about him. Harold recognizes the connection between Stu and Dana as well, and he is busy hiding his smile behind his hand. This greatly irritates Fran, and we are taken back to July 19th, and another excerpt from Fran's diary. In the last chapter, Fran mentioned Harold having tried to make love to her, but King never really expounded on that bit of information. Until now. Glenn and Stu had gone into town in Ohio to look for some food. Harold and Fran opted to stay behind with Mark and Perrion, who were both still alive at this point, and those two had gone off to quote-unquote hunt for wild berries. Fran helped Harold get a kettle of water boiling, and when Harold came back from the nearest stream, um, it was very clear that he had also used it to wash up. They both sat on a log, talking, when Harold suddenly put his arms around her and tried to kiss her. He managed to do it at first because Fran had been so stunned to do anything else. When she pulled back from him, she fell backward right off the log and scraped up her back. The situation reminds Fran a lot of what happened with Jess uh, when she told him she was pregnant and he made a movement towards her that startled her and she fell down and bit her tongue. Harold is blushing and asks her, are you all right, baby? And of course, Fran begins to giggle. Fran writes in her diary, talk about history repeating itself, but it was more than the humor of the situation, you know. If that had been all, I could have held it in. No, it was more in the line of hysterics. The bad dreams, the worrying about the baby, what to do about my feelings for Stu, the traveling every day the stiffness, the soreness, losing my parents. Everything changed for good. It came out in giggles at first, then in hysterical laughter. I just couldn't stop. Harold asks her what's so funny, but Fran can't respond. All she can do is giggle and sob and cover her face. 
After a while, she's able to stop, and she wanted to ask Carol to check her back and see how scraped up it really was. But she writes, I didn't because I was afraid he might take it as a liberty. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of Franny. Oh ho, that's not so funny. And despite Fran's protests, Harold tells Fran that he loves her. She writes, I guess I knew it all along. It was just as bald as that. It would be easier if he only wanted to sleep with me. Love's more dangerous than just bawling, and I was in a spot. How to say no to Harold? I guess there's only one way, no matter who you have to say it to. And Fran is very blunt with it. She tells Harold that she doesn't love him, and he knows it's because of Stu. Fran doesn't know that that's true, but Harold does. He knew it from the day they met Stu. Harold tells Fran that Stu said he didn't want Fran, that Fran could be Harold's. She replies, just like giving you a new pair of shoes, right, Harold? And she states that no one owns her. And Harold replies that she may have to change that idea. To Harold, Stu is the quarterback throwing spitballs and flipping people off because he knows the teacher has to pass him so he can continue to play ball. He's the guy who goes out with the prettiest cheerleader, and she thinks he's Jesus Christ with a bullet. The guy who farts when the English teacher tells you to read your composition because it's the best one in the class. Harold tells Fran that he knows guys like Stu, and good luck with fuckers like him. She writes, Then he just walked off. It wasn't the grand, trampling exit that he'd meant to make, I feel quite sure. It was more like he'd had some secret dream, and I just shot it full of holes. The dream being that things had changed, the reality being that nothing really had. I felt terrible for him, God's truth, because when he walked off, he wasn't playing at jaded cynicism, but real cynicism. Not jaded, but as sharp and hurtful as a knife blade. He was whipped. Oh, but what Harold will never see is that his head has got to change a little first. He's got to see that the world is going to stay the same as long as he does. He stores up rebuffs the way pirates were supposed to store up treasure. The others return at that point in her diary, and she stops, but she does add things to remember. I'm sorry, diary. It must be my state of mind. I can't remember a single thing. In the present, Fran comes upon Stu, smoking a cigar, alone on a rock, watching the sunset. He asks Fran to join him, and she does. Harold, Glenn, and two of the women had gone to find a CB radio. Glenn's idea, instead of Harold's for a change. And Patty was babysitting the two combat fatigue women back at the camp. Shirley showed signs of coming out of her days, but the woman with no name seemed to be going in the opposite direction. Fran laments that it feels like they still have a long way to go, and Stu says the old woman is no longer in Nebraska. Fran knows this already, and Stu realizes that Fran had not been taking the Veranol. But neither is Stu. Dana and Susan don't want to take them either. Stu explains he hadn't wanted to take the sleeping pills because he felt out of touch. Glenn and Harold going to get that CB radio. That was a real good idea. What's a two-way for? To put you in touch. This buddy of mine back in Arnett, Tony Leominster, he had one in his scout. Great gadget. You could talk to folks or you could holler for help if you got into a jam of trouble. These dreams, they're almost like having a CB in your head except the transmit seems to be broken, and we're only receiving. Fran startles Stu when she suggests that maybe they are transmitting. 
And Stu had started dreaming of the Dark Man again, and he believes that he's out west in Las Vegas. Stu believes that the Dark Man is crucifying people who give him trouble. Fran hopes that this is just a dream, but Stu isn't so sure. He's dreamed of the old woman, too, sitting in the cab of an old pickup truck on Highway 76. The two are talking together, just as natural as Stu is talking to Fran, and Mother Abigail tells Stu, You've got to move him along faster still, Stuart. If an old lady like me can do it, a big tough fella from Texas like you should be able to. Fran says they're going to Colorado, and Stu agrees. Dana and Susan have both dreamed of her as well, and Mother Abigail now has 20 or so people with her, and they'll pick them more along the way. People will either go with Mother Abigail, or they'll continue west to him. Stu asks Fran why she stopped taking the Varanol, but Fran is afraid to tell him the truth. Stu figures there are other ways to find out what women are thinking, and he kisses her. They make love, and afterwards, Stu admits that he's wanted Fran for a long time. Fran returns the sentiment, but she wanted to avoid trouble with Harold. Stu believes Harold has the makings of a fine man somewhere inside of him, if he would only toughen up. They decide to keep things quiet for a while, and Fran admits that she feels a debt of gratitude to Harold. They were the only two left in a gunquit, after all. But Stu points out that that was pure luck, and nothing more. She cannot let anyone put her in a headhold over something that was just pure luck. Stu admits that he loves her, and it's not easy for him to say. She is finally able to say that she loves him too, but there's something else. And Fran finally tells him that she's pregnant. No one else knows but Stu, and Fran is terrified of his reaction. He was peering into her face in a concentrated way that scared her. She had imagined one of two things. He would leave her immediately, as Jess undoubtedly would have if he had discovered she was pregnant with another man's child, or he would hug her, tell her not to worry, that he could take care of everything. She had never expected this startled, close scrutiny, and she found herself remembering the night she had told her father in the garden. His look had been very much like this one. She wished she had told Stu what her situation was before they had made love, Maybe then they wouldn't have made love at all, but at least he wouldn't have been able to feel he had somehow been taken advantage of, that she was, what was the old phrase? Damaged goods. Was he thinking that? She simply could not tell. Stu asks when she's due, and she says January and begins to cry. He hugs her then, and she knows that he doesn't need to say it's all right or that he'll take care of everything. They make love again, neither of them seeing Harold as shadowy and silent as the dark man himself, watching from the bushes. Fran's diary entry on August 1st, she and Stu are officially together, and she's happy. She and Stu decided to keep knowledge of the baby, aka in the diary, the Lone Ranger, (laughs) a secret, at least until they're settled in Colorado. They haven't quite made it across Indiana yet, but they did come across a lot of vehicles where they'd found dead soldiers, So they took about two dozen rifles, some grenades, and yes, a rocket launcher, for which there were 17 or 18 rockets. Fran writes down that Harold doesn't seem to suspect a thing about Fran and Stu's new relationship, but when they finally catch up with Mother Abigail's party, they'll have to tell him. It wouldn't be fair to hide it any longer. And Harold had been more bright and cheerful than she's ever seen him. He was the one who suggested that Stu help him with the dangerous rocket launcher. 
But that night, as Fran slept, Harold watched her, no longer bright and cheerful. He was not smiling now, although he had smiled all day. At times, he had felt like the smile would crack his face right up in the middle and spill out his whirling brains. That might have been a relief. Harold goes through Fran's pack, and he finds her diary. He takes it back to his sleeping bag with his flashlight, and as he trained its beam on the front cover of the spiral, there was a moment of sanity. For just a moment, part of his mind cried out, Harold, stop, so strongly that he was shaken to his heels. And stop he almost did. For just a moment, it seemed possible to stop, to put the diary back where he'd found it, to give her up, to let them go their own way before something terrible and irrevocable happened. For that moment, it seemed he could put the bitter drink away, pour it out of the cup, and refill it with whatever there was for him in this world. Give it over, Harold, this sane voice begged, but maybe it was already too late. And unfortunately, Harold does not listen to that voice. He opens the diary and begins to read. Later, an hour before dawn, he returns to the diary in her pack, taking no care and being quiet. He decides if Fran wakes up, he will simply kill her and run off. But run where? West. But he wouldn't stop in Colorado or Nebraska. Fran doesn't wake, and Harold returns to his sleeping bag. He dreamed he was dying halfway down a steep grade of tumbled rocks and moonscape boulders. High above, riding the night thermals, were cruising buzzards, waiting for him to make them a meal. There was no moon, no stars. And then a frightful red eye opened in the dark, Vulpine Eldritch. The eye terrified him, yet held him. The eye beckoned him. To the west, where the shadows were even now gathering, in their twilight dance of death. In Joliet, Illinois, Fran comments on Harold's good mood. He replies that every dog has his day, which confuses her a bit, but is Harold, so it doesn't really matter. What mattered was things were finally coming right. And that night, Harold began his own journal. So this chapter starts off with a bang, quite literally, and a lot of action with Fran, Harold, Glenn, and Stu coming upon a wreckage in the middle of the road. There's not a lot of time to really grasp what's happening before this, the guns start blazing. And King does a really good job at writing this out in such a way that it makes sense and doesn't get confusing, which can happen quite a bit when you don't know the characters' names. He has to focus on description. Um, Personally, I am really terrible at writing action sequences. (laughs) Really terrible. But King did a really great job here. Um, And it happens so quickly, despite, you know, the amount of time it's on paper um, for Fran. I think it's less than a minute. There's so much going on here, and it's a miracle that none of the four get shot in the chaos of it all. Harold and Stu do the majority of the work on their end, but it's the women traveling with these armed men that really get shit done. Out of the eight women, three are shot and killed, but all four men are killed in one way or another. And we learn that the women were being held captive by these men, sexually assaulted and drugged to keep compliant. One of the women, Dana Jurgens, saw Fran and the others and formulated a plan to overpower the men. It seemed to be their last chance for freedom. So instead of four in the party, there are now nine. Dana Jurgens and Susan Stern, 
Patty Kroger, who we learn is 17, and two other women, Shirley Hammett, and one who seems to be slightly catatonic, as no one knows her name, and she's not really, I guess, socializing with them in a way that she should be. We've seen some truly horrible things happen in this book so far, but have any of our survivors had to deal with some of these hard cases left behind? Nick and Tom had their run-in with Julie, who seemed more mentally unstable than evil. Nick had to fight off and kill Ray Booth, who was delirious with Captain Trips when he attacked Nick and tried to kill him. Stu fought off Elder, who was acting on orders from above to kill him. But Doc, Garvey, Ronnie, and Verge are a category all on their own. No doubt they would have ended up in Vegas. Murdering people in cold blood. Keeping women as a harem, or a zoo, as they sometimes called it. Assaulting them, drugging them. This is the bottom of the barrel, the lowest of the low of humanity. In this chapter, King is sure to remind us that this isn't just characters we've grown to care about taking a long road trip across the wasteland that is now America while having some prophetic dreams. They're going to face a lot of hardships and horrors, just not, you know, not just in their dreams with the Dark Man, but in reality. Doc and the others represent the dark side of humanity that remains, and there's no doubt that these four men aren't the only ones out there taking things and people as they please. For me, this is more terrifying than having dreams about the Dark Man, um, because, you know, at this point, they're starting to realize that the Dark Man, Randall Flagg, is real, but... Before, he was just a dream, a nightmare. And these men who have taken these women and done horrible things to them, they are very real. So Dana and Stu seem to hit it off, which triggers, of course, a lot of jealousy in Fran. Even in a post-apocalyptic world, people are still human, facing normal human emotion. Harold is, of course, amused by this. And we learn he finally did tell Fran that he loved her and tried to kiss her weeks ago. But Fran turned him down. In Harold's mind, it really did seem like Fran was his property and something he could claim, which I find that to be the only reason, the only excuse he has for hanging on, because I think she's made it pretty clear, other than being nice to him, that she is not interested in being with him romantically. And I really did enjoy Fran's line, where she tells Harold um, that Stu telling him that he could have Fran was like giving him a new pair of shoes. She's just an object to Harold because she doesn't want to belong to anybody. And of course, we know from her previous diary entries that she does crave someone. She craves Stu, and that she understands her vulnerability in this new world, especially being pregnant. This chapter introduces us to some new characters, notably Susan Stern and Dana Jurgens, but it also deals with Fran and Stu's feelings for each other, as well as the choices Harold begins to make that could trigger long-term effects. Stu and Fran finally admit their feelings, and they sleep together. Fran is held back for so long because of Harold, because of some debt she feels she owes him. But Stu is pretty plain with his opinion. Harold and Fran being the only two left in a gunquit was luck. It's not fair for Fran to essentially place her life and her happiness on hold because of Harold. Harold does not have the right to keep her from living her life. He does have a point, Stu does, and it makes sense on one hand... You know, Fran keeping her feelings for Stu to herself because she doesn't want to upset Harold, especially if she feels as though he's not entirely stable and she's clearly worried that he could pull a gun and shoot Stu if he takes the news badly. 
But how long should Fran have to do that? She doesn't want Harold, nor does she love him. She's pregnant, and she can't place she can't keep placing Harold above all others, holding back on how she feels to spare his feelings. Harold may be young, but he sure acts like an adult. He is a smart ass, he's knowledgeable, and he should be able to accept the fact that the girl he loves doesn't love him back. Even Harold understands this. As stated when he takes her diary and that nagging voice of his conscience tries to keep him from going through such a with such a violating act, um, Harold knows he should just move on from Fran before doing something he can't take back. But he ignores that voice and he pushes forward anyway. He even thinks that he'll kill Fran if she wakes up when he's returning her diary and he knows that he won't run to Colorado. He will run out west to Vegas. We see him dreaming of dying down a steep grade of rocks and boulders, and he sees the frightful red eye, Flag's eye, opening in the dark and watching him. The eye frightens him, but it beckons him out west. Is this a premonition, or is this just Flag tempting Harold by reaching out to him? And Harold clearly is tempted by this eye. He's feeling betrayed by Fran. He hates Stu. It is probably just enough to push him down a darker path, though we see no sign that he plans on leaving Fran's party anytime soon. Instead, he begins his own journal, and I can only imagine what he plans on writing in that. I'm glad that Stu and Fran are finally an item as well, and if I had to read again about Fran holding back for Harold's sake one more time, I probably would have screamed. (laughs) And I like Fran a lot. And I'm glad that she was blunt with Harold about her feelings or lack thereof. I think that if she would have sugarcoated it or, and I'm not saying that she was mean. I think she was just very um, upfront with how she felt or didn't feel about him. I feel like if she would have sugarcoated it or been, you know, kind of hedging around the truth, he probably would have kept pursuing her or felt like Stu was really in the way. Um, And who knows what he would have done then. I thought maybe it would be Fran who made the first move with Stu, especially after her jealousy with Dana. But it's Stu who makes the first move. And of course, Harold is watching from the bushes like a creeper. And after discovering the two together, Harold puts on a rather cheery disposition. But we know that it's all a front for whatever it is he's planning to do next. It seems pretty clear where we're going with Harold, but I think we kind of got that feeling um, the first few times that we met him. There's just something off about Harold, uh, something unlikable. And I don't know if he would have been any different had Fran returned his affections. So I'm not willing to put any blame on Fran for how Harold is behaving. Based on the dreams, Fran and Stu now know that Mother Abigail is no longer in Hemingford home, but headed to Colorado. They don't seem to question the significance of the dreams anymore either. In a way, they are like a CB radio, transmitting and receiving messages. And it's mentioned that Harold and Glenn went into the nearest town to find a CB radio, just like Tom, Ralph, and Dick had. Um, So I wonder if they will connect uh, over the radio with Nick's party. We will just um, have to wait a little bit to find out because next week in Chapter 48, We've got quite a long journey with Trash Can Man, who is headed west, 
and gets mixed up with a rather interesting but dangerous character named The Kid. And that is it for episode 44 of The Circle Opens. According to my Kindle, and this is also taking into consideration acknowledgments and the intro that King wrote at the beginning of the book, but according to my Kindle, we are 50% of the way through the stand. I'm going to assume that's a bit of a loose number, again, because of the acknowledgments and the intro, um, but we are basically through 50% of this book. We still have quite a way to go, but it's getting really good. I've always thought it was good, but it's like everyone's coming together now. Things are coming to a head. Um, everybody seems to be headed for Colorado or Vegas, so the stages are being set uh, for the final battle between good and evil. And I'm really excited for next week's chapter. I'm excited to uh, hit up on some of Flag's people now that we've been with Mother Abigail's party for a while. So if you're enjoying this podcast, uh, please leave me a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. I truly do appreciate every single one. I love reading the reviews. You guys have been amazing. Um, and they really do cheer me up in this <laughs> in this self-isolation slash quarantine. Um, I've really been enjoying connecting with other fans of Stephen King and The Stand. So thank you guys for reaching out. Um, again, you can email me at thecirclecloses at gmail.com. You can follow me on social media at The Circle Opens. Um, and that's pretty much it for this week, you guys. I hope that you are all staying safe. I hope you're all healthy. Um, we will get through this. We will get through this. Not only um, all the issues with this virus, but we will get through this book. We have, like I said, a way to go, but um, it's getting really good. I hope that you guys are enjoying it as much as I am. So with that being said, M-O-O-N, that spells. See you next week. and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter -chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com.